Happy Reformation Sunday. My name is Eliezer, but more about me in a moment. As undoubtedly you're aware, October 31st, 2017, a year from now, will be the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the formal action of the Protestant Reformation. As undoubtedly you know, in 1517 on October 31, Dr. Martin Luther nailed his 95 thesis. These were his concerns about the universal church. I say universal church because prior to that, the Western church was unified. Undoubtedly, Dr. Luther wanted it to remain unified. After all, he was a church insider. He was a priest, a monk, a scholar, a university professor at the University of Wittenberg in Germany. He had no intention at this point in dividing the church between what became known as Catholic and Protestant. We know this because if you read the 95 Thesis, and I know you have, they were originally written in Latin, the language of scholars, and they're not all that condemning of the church. In fact, they were typical scholarly language of some of the concerns that all insiders knew needed to be addressed. The fact that it was written in Latin makes it very clear that the intent was for scholars to debate it. It was beyond his intent and beyond his control that someone translated it into German, later into French and English, and it spread among the populace, causing what we call the protest, which is what Protestant means. Prior to that event, the Western Christian Church was unified. What were the people protesting? The answers are many. They were protesting, for instance, that many leaders of the church were quite corrupt. That's true whether we talk about priests or bishops, archbishops, cardinals, or popes. In this, contemporary Catholic and Protestant scholars agree Many at that time that were church insiders were quite corrupt. To be sure, there were godly leaders, godly priests, bishops, archbishops, cardinals, and popes, but far fewer than one might believe. Too many were interested in creaturely comforts rather than teaching the word of God and living God-centered lives. Not a few leaders were connected politically and militarily and they demanded their way. Not many, but maybe the highest of leadership was directly connected to kings and queens. And the protest came because we wanted to worship God as our conscience dictated. 
but people wouldn't allow it. Let me illustrate it from my Eliezer's part of the world, the British Isles. Some of you have heard of Henry VIII, right? Henry VIII, I am, I am, Henry VIII, I am. You know the guy. Well, what you may not know about Henry is that he was staunchly Catholic until he wasn't. And then he was somewhat Protestant. And then he declared himself to be head of the church. Do you know what that meant for individuals like me? That meant that by law, I was staunchly Catholic, then semi-Protestant, and then by law I needed to declare that Henry VIII was the head of the church. He was followed by his sickly son, King Edward IV, who was reformationally Protestant. So then we all became Protestant. A half a dozen years later, he was followed by Mary, his sister, Bloody Mary, who literally murdered 300 Protestant leaders on the British Isles and mandated that we were Catholic. So in a short amount of time, some of us went from staunchly Catholic to quasi-Protestant to Henry as the head of the church to reformationally Protestant to Catholic and none of it had anything to do with the dictates of our own conscience. It had everything to do with the church and the government working together to control our lives. Does not John chapter 8 verse 36 say, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Do you and I not read in 2 Corinthians 3, the 17th verse, that the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom to worship God as our conscience dictates. Freedom to honor the Lord. But that's not what was going on. Instead, you and I, if we lived in that era, were mandated to worship God the way the king and the church mandated. And the result was the protest, which is what Protestant means. My name, it's Eliezer. Let me tell you my role in the Protestant Reformation. Well, I really didn't play much of a role. I was merely a parish pastor in Clankton Magna, just watching over a small parish that was my job. So I, Eliezer Knox. Ah, you heard my last name, did you not? While I am unknown to you, perhaps my father is known to you. I am Eliezer Knox, the son of John Knox, the thundering Scot, the trumpet of the Scottish Reformation. And yes, he was also called Knox the Knave, so derisively called by Cardinal Beatin, the Archbishop of St. Andrew, who hated my father. Understand that Cardinal Beatin although he had taken vows of abstinence, 
sired at least 10 children through his various concubines, and my father held his feet to the fire. In response, Cardinal Beaton not only mocked my dad with names, but he told my dad that if he ever came to St. Andrews, he ever dared to step foot in that part of the country, that he would have my father put to death. Those weren't empty words. The fact of the matter is Cardinal Beaton hired an assassin who actually took shots at my father. But by God's grace, those shots missed. Well, let me back up and tell you just a little bit about my dad, John Knox. John Knox was born in Haddington, 17 miles outside of Edinburgh. He was born to a farmer, a reputable profession, but that meant that my dad had only two options in life. He could farm, or if he was erudite enough, he could earn scholarships to a local university. The fact of the matter is my dad was brilliant. And at age 15, he was brought into St. Andrews University, later went on to Cambridge University. The truth is, I don't know what degrees my father may have earned. I don't seem to remember, but I know this. My father was taught the scriptures in the university, and my father clung tightly to the five solas of the Reformation. They were the things that drove my father's life. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola Scriptura is the conviction that we don't teach church dogma, we don't teach church law, we don't teach the dictates of the intricacies of the church, we teach the 39 Old Testament books, the 27 New Testament books, sola scriptura, scripture alone as a source of authority. He believed in sola fide, sola gratia, and solas Christus. Faith alone, faith in the grace extended to us Sola gratia. Grace is not what we earn. It's what we, by faith, receive from Solus Christus Christ, who took the wrath of God upon himself, went to the cross, paid the penalty of sin, which is death, and then rose again that if by faith we would believe in him, we would be given eternal life. Soli Deo Gloria. To the glory of of God. These were the five solas. These were the things that my father was willing to lay down his life for. They marked my father. They marked his belief system. Now many have likened my father, John Knox, to Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet. <laughs> Not exactly the life of the party if you're asking me. Uh, Jeremiah is the weeping prophet, is he not? That's kind of the way my dad was. If I'm honest with you, my dad was boisterous, bombastic, 
impetuous, cantankerous, not politically correct. He spoke when he should have been quiet. He's a lot like some of us. My dad is every man, every woman, every person. There's lots of faults of my dad, but there are many wonderful things about my dad as well. And my dad was used to win many to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. My dad was used to win a nation, tens of thousands of Scots came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as they heard the preaching of my dad. Bold, courageous, Bible-centered preaching. And people's hearts were lit on fire by the Spirit of God, and they came to know Christ. But it wasn't only in Scotland. You see, my father was threatened his life on numerous occasions, and two times he was exiled. He ended up in Geneva. He ended up at St. Pierre's Cathedral, St. Peter's Cathedral, under the tutelage of Dr. John Calvin. And while there, he preached, and many Frenchmen and women came to Christ. Many expatriates came to Christ. During the reign of Edward IV, easily the most godly Tudor king, almost certainly the most godly monarch in British history, for the six years that Edward IV essentially reigned, every day, every day, my father preached to Jonathan Edwards, to, to, not Jonathan, to King Edwards, and he, he braced Christ, and he loved Christ, and he lived for Christ, and he served Christ. That's the legacy of my father. Now, what did he preach? Well, he preached that someone needed to come. He preached Romans 10, 14 and 15. How can they call? on whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear unless someone preaches? And how can they preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. He preached Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. He preached sola fide faith alone, sola gratia in God's grace alone. And he preached sola Christus in Christ alone. My father John's impact was so great that in 1560, the Scottish Parliament came to my dad and they asked him to write the Scott Confessions, essentially the equivalent of England's The Book of Common Prayer. These confessions guided our nation on the paths of righteousness for over a century. 
these confessions were used in law for over a century. That's how God used my dad. But I told you my dad's impetuous, bombastic, cantankerous. He spoke when he should have been quiet. He's every man, he's every woman. It's all too true. My father's nemesis was Bloody Mary, the queen. He couldn't swallow her. He couldn't stomach her. He hated her. And he wanted her dead. And so my dad went to Dr. John Calvin and he said, do you think we can find rationale in scripture to kill the queen? And Dr. Calvin said, no, absolutely not. It cannot be found. It is not wise. And he cited Romans 13, 1 and 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God, and those that resist the governing authorities will suffer judgment. I understand that you all are heading to a national election. I understand for some of you, it's a bit unsettling, as though God is still not on the throne. He is. I understand that some are opting not to vote. Oh, that my generation and my place have been given opportunity to vote. Vote your conscience. But know this. Sometimes God puts people in positions of authority to bless a nation. Sometimes God puts people in authority to discipline a nation. Sometimes God puts people in authority just to keep the status quo. But regardless, we have as Christ followers the conviction that we will honor and pray for whoever is in office. Did not Paul tell us as much in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 to 3? First of all, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and people in authority, that you may live a quiet and gracious life Godly and dignified, which is God's intent in Christ Jesus. That's God's command for you, and it's God's command for me. Unfortunately, my father chose otherwise to his lasting detriment. He created the justification of revolution. What he thought was a justification for someone like himself to kill Bloody Mary. Now to be fair, to be fair, Bloody Mary had murdered 300 of his contemporaries and she was gunning for him. To be fair, he had suffered exile twice because of Bloody Mary. And so he created the Justification of revolution. I'm not going to go into all the details of it. 
I don't believe it is accurate. But suffice it to say that he based it on Numbers 25. And in Numbers 25, we see the grandson of Phineas, who during a time of national repentance, a time when everyone was to gather together to repent of personal and national sin, there were two individuals in their tent fornicating. And he grabbed a spear and he went into the tent and he drove the spear through both of them. And it was credited to him as righteousness. And my father tried to use that account to justify taking out Bloody Mary. A reminder to you and to me that we cannot pull out of Scripture what we want it to say. Scripture speaks for itself. Allow Scripture to speak to your heart and to mine. Well, I've been honest about John Knox. I've told you that he is impetuous, bombastic, cantankerous. But there's much. There is much to admire about John Knox. In 1909, in Geneva, Switzerland, on the 400th anniversary of the birth of John Calvin in 1509, the Reformation Wall was built. It's an incredible place. Rumor has it that the senior pastor of this establishment, he actually went there. And to the other disbelief of his wife and his kids, he stared at the wall for over an hour. Four greats. Four greats chiseled in stone. Theodore Beza, Dr. John Calvin, William Farrell, and John Knox. And he stared at it, and he stared at it, and he stared at it. The boy needs a life, if you ask me. And while he stood there, he prayed that God would give a measure of that wisdom to him. But he didn't want the austere looks, just saying. Under John Knox, in French, I'll translate it in English, it says this. A man joined to God is always in the majority. A man joined to God is always in the majority. Why would somebody write that 337 years after the death of my father in 1572? The reason is this. My, man, my father was a man of mighty prayer. My father believed that when you pray, you don't ask God to do what you want you ask God where God is moving and you ask to join God. He believed that God wanted to win the nation of Scotland for Jesus. And he begged God for the opportunity to go and join God to win people to Christ. My father was a wrestler 
with God in prayer. In a day and age where people are self-made and self-dependent and self-reliant, my father wanted nothing to do with it. He wanted to be dependent upon God. And so he would wrestle with God and he would beg God to move, that God would act, that God would change, and that he could have a part in whatever direction God was moving. Some of the verses my father loved were Matthew 6.10. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He loved James 5.17, that the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. He loved 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. He loved Matthew 26, 41. Watch and pray, lest ye fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he was a man of incredible prayer. And he passed on that legacy to his progeny. I think of my sister Elizabeth. Elizabeth was married to a great reformer, His name was John Welch. You probably know him. John Welch was a man mighty in the word and mighty in prayer. My sister Elizabeth, the youngest, and her husband John Welch used to get up in the middle of the night every night. And they'd get on their knees and they'd pray that God would move and God's spirit would draw tens of thousands of Scots to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Elizabeth's husband, John Welch, had the audacity to preach that the king was Christ. And when James I heard that, he arrested John Welch and brought him to England, put him on trial. It was clear that he would be beheaded for the crime of declaring that Christ is king. And so Elizabeth left her home in Scotland and came to London. She sought an audience with James I. Unbelievably, she was granted an audience with James I. And James interrogated her. And he said, I already know. Your husband is John Welch. Who is your father? I would have paid money to have been there. When my sister said, my father is John Knox, I understood the king almost pulled his hair out. And then he said, Welch and Knox, the devil never made a pair like that. And then, and then the king said, I will grant your husband release under two conditions. One, he needs to stop preaching. And two, he needs to stop praying. And my sister pulled out her apron and held it out and said, my husband's head here, please. Better that I have my husband's head. And he continues to preach 
and pray till his dying breath, then release him and have him violate his conscience. Her husband never saw the light of day again. Two years later, he died. They say that his knees were like those of a camel, calluses all over from the hours he spent on his knees in prayer. That's the legacy of John Knox. You want to know what to imitate in John Knox? Imitate his prayer. Mary Geist, the queen regent, once said of my dad, I would rather face an army of 10,000 enemies than one prayer from John Knox. John Knox was a man of prayer. He was also a man of the word, the centrality of Scripture. He believed it was every man, every woman, every person's job to go, every person's job to proclaim the gospel. He believed Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5.20. We are there for Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. But while he believed that it was every person's job, he wanted nothing to do with it vocationally. When he felt the weight of God's call on his life to vocational ministry, my dad burst out crying and ran from the room. He wanted nothing to do with proclaiming Christ vocationally. The weight was just too great. It was too heavy. And he didn't want to do it. But not being willing to resist God wrestling with God in prayer and wanting to go where God was moving, my father became a vocational preacher. And the thundering Scott really preached. Up until my dad began to preach in Scotland, there is absolutely no evidence that anyone ever preached exegetically in that land. What we know is that a Historian, a contemporary of my dad wrote this. Balaam's donkey, not the word he used. Balaam's donkey preaches better than all the priests and pastors combined. You see, people were preaching from the lectionary. They were preaching Latin messages, homilies that they had memorized the priests and the pastors didn't know what the meaning of the messages they were preaching. Nobody who heard them understood the language. Nobody could comprehend them. And they would preach the same message week after week after week, but not the thundering Scott. He began to preach scripture to the great and mighty and the meek and mousy to the illiterate and the literate, to the lettered and the pauper. And he preached exegetically through books, through passages of Scripture. And lives were changed. My father is every man. He's every woman. 
Do you want to know how hated my father was? 140 years after his death, the Scottish Parliament outlawed his books and had them burned. Who reads somebody who's been dead for 140 years their books and tells you how valuable they were? In 1982, in 1982, the Edinburgh Town Council removed the tombstone from my dad's grave in the south side of South Gales, Giles. And then they paved over the parking lot. And today if you park in parking spot 23, you'll be parking on my dad. My dad was every man. My dad was every woman. He was every person. He was impetuous. He was bombastic. He was cantankerous. He didn't know how to control his mouth. But he was used by God. You remember what Paul said? Paul said, as I imitate Christ, imitate me. Do you want to know what you ought to imitate about my dad? Imitate his commitment to prayer. He moved a nation empowered by God's spirit. Imitate his prayer. Imitate the centrality of the word. He taught passage by passage, book by book, exegetically through the word. Imitate my father's courage. Assassins came and went and nobody could move my dad away from preaching Christ. I think the doxology in Romans eleven thirty six well summarizes my father's life. I think he would say that this is his theme. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him, Christ, be glory forever. Amen.